Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Well, good evening and welcome, children of the night, offspring of the season. Come, come in and settle down. I'm glad you could make it so soon after Thanksgiving. Welcome home to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify, and to the post-Thanksgiving pre-Christmas rush and crush. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and tonight, tonight, tonight we have a delightful evening planned. Travel and fine dining are the themes. But first, I must offer a sincere mea culpa to Kevin Lucia, in my enthusiasm about his new release from Crystal Lake Publishing, last week I thought it would be clever and comfortably sweet to mention the title again and again during my minute-and-a-quarter gush over the book. Give it the old dippity-doo treatment, don't you know? Dippity-doo? Well, look it up. Alas, I got the title wrong. Five or six times... A minor slip of the mind, but instead of calling the book by its rightful name, Things Slip Through, which has a nice resonance, I kept citing a non-existent something called Things Fall Through, which is dull and without savor. So, apapalilogies, my droogs, Kevin's book is Things Slip Through, Things Slip Through, Things Slip Through, Things Slip Through, Things Slip Through. Through. <sighs> I ask a question and will not hear your answer, yet let it be known I did ask. Did we all have a good and gluttonous, whichever is your druthers, Thanksgiving? And having thanked Providence yesterday for all we have, did we then dash out this morning to take up arms against a sea of shoppers to acquire more? of the goodness of life. Uh, to Celia and I did not. We hide on Black Fridays, pull the apartment, the nook in around us, and snuggle. But enough. Another question. Have you wondered what Mike Allen has been up to lately? Well, wonder no more. Here he is on another solo adventure in the abattoir, Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to a new installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and today I've brought you a couple of book reviews, perhaps guiding you in gifts that you can give to yourself this holiday season. If you're a regular listener of my column, or even of Tales to Terrify in general, 
and you haven't already bought yourself Laird Barron's new short story collection, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, well then, shame on you. You know I'm a Laird Barron fan, and you should be too. Laird's a rare bird in our modern age, a writer who's risen to prominence and made his reputation chiefly through short fiction. He actually has two novels out now, The Light is the Darkness and The Croning, both of which I've reviewed in previous tours. Though they both have their virtues, I would argue that neither of them are in league with the best of his short fiction. Something you'll get a big heaping sample of inside The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All. Beautiful Thing completes a trilogy of collections, actually, all released through the troubled publishing house Nightshade Books. The Imago sequence contains the stories about rough men facing cosmic horrors that put him on the map when they started appearing in print in Gordon Van Gelder's magazine of fantasy and science fiction and online in Ellen Datlow's sci-fiction. The second volume, Occultation, continues the theme, though many of those stories are looser in construction and hinge on disintegrating romantic relationships. I favor the Imago sequence, though I can't help but have a soft spot for Occultation, as I published the title story myself in the first volume of Clockwork Phoenix. The beautiful thing that awaits us all gets back to the straightforward fist-pounding action against the unnameable that drives Laird's earlier work, but goes about it with more finesse than before. We open with Blackwood's Baby, a grim tribute to Arthur Mackin's The Great God Pan that has a hunting party stalking the woods in Washington State, a favorite setting for many of Barron's stories. Hunting an elusive stag that's no ordinary animal at all. You'll figure out early on that the hunters are also the hunted, but our lead hero has a hole in his own soul that leads to a surprise final twist. Next up comes the Redfield Girls, perhaps the most traditional ghost story Laird has ever written. Set at a lake plagued by inexplicable drownings, though it's not tied into the cosmic mythos Laird's been building in other stories and novels, it still delivers some otherworldly frights and some real-world trauma. Then there's World Fantasy Award nominee Hand of Glory a throwback to 1930s pulp tales that follows the pattern established in early stories like Bulldozer and the Imago sequence, and does an excellent job of mixing what I would almost call the Laird Baron formula with the gangster genre. I should add that there's some subtle connections here to his novel The Croning, found especially in the appearance of a fearsomely witchy woman in the novella's early passages. The Carrion Gods in their heaven has more in common with the stories found in Occultation. We have a couple, two women, together in an isolated cabin, one lover becoming less and less trustworthy as she seems to fall into league with hostile aspects of nature, regressing back to the primitive, bringing home a strange animal skin that changes more than her demeanor when she wears it. You could call it Laird's version of a werewolf story. And if that makes you wonder what Laird's version of a vampire story would be like, there's the very next story in this collection with a title that I love. It's just called Siphon, which, for the poor victims in this tale, well, imagine if a story about a world-destroying cyclone was called Breeze. Jaws of Saturn takes place in the Broadsword Hotel, a location central to Laird's own version of the Cthulhu mythos. It bears some resemblance in structure to his novel The Light is the Darkness, as our low-life hero learns that his lady love is being experimented on by an unsavory mystic, a man, or more than a man, who we happen to have met earlier in the book as the antagonist of Hand of Glory. The next story veers off into left field. Vast Station is a surreal send-up of all things Lovecraftian that first appeared in the Daw anthology Cthulhu's Reign, 
which was devoted to stories set in a world after Cthulhu and his ilk conquer humanity. I had a story in that book, too. This particular story by Laird unfolds in a dreamlike fusion where the journey is much, much more important than the destination. Then we get to the book's crowned jewel, The Men from Porlock, which ties directly into his novel The Croning. Though I confess, I just about wish I'd read the story first. The Men from Porlock has a heightened tension and a laser focus that's missing from the longer work for most of its length. A posse of lumberjacks is sent hunting in the woods to bring back deer for a meal that's intended for a special guest due to arrive at the camp. If you know Baron's stories, you know that nothing is random, and not one element of this signifies good things to come for our heroes. The lumberjacks stumble upon a community of cultists hidden in the woods and the things the cultists serve. But they're not exactly helpless themselves, and the result is a high-tension descent into pain and madness that follows the classic and-then-there-were-none formula, but feels totally fresh. Men from Porlock ends with a notion found in other stories in the collection, like Siphon, or even in Laird's novel The Croning. The idea that one person gets left alive to tell the tale, because these beings from out of time thrive on the fear that humans feel when they hear these stories, just as much as the creatures thrive on devouring the flesh of the innocent. And if it's really the case that there are creatures out there that feed on fear, this book ought to generate a feast for them. There's one more story to go, though. Like Vast Station, the final novella, The Dark, feels a tad out of place. It's taken from Laird's more recent playbook, where he uses people he knows as characters, and elements of literary spoof run a bit more prominently, along with elements that are often deeply personal, and yet despite that, a lot of these newer works don't feel quite as powerful as these signature works, to me. The Dark is simultaneously an homage to and parody of the fiction and ideas of Thomas Ligotti. Laird isn't a huge fan of Ligotti's work, which I find fascinating given that they're both writers who earn their laurels with short stories that provide their own unique angles on the Lovecraft template. Ligotti, though, is very much of the mind, very abstract, and someone who presumes at the outset that all hope is lost whereas Laird is a man of action, his characters going down fighting even when they clearly have no chance. Regardless which strand of Laird's fiction you like, this book will not disappoint. Now, this was the main thing I wanted to talk to you folks about, but I have a little bonus to toss in. A few months back, I stumbled across a book I hadn't heard of before by Clive Barker. Maybe I haven't given his work the fairest shake, but the fact is, I'm a big fan of Barker's early stories, like The Books of Blood and The Great and Secret Show. His later novels haven't appealed to me as much, at least of the ones that I actually have read. Imagica was kind of a breaking point for me, as it felt like a sprawling mess rather than a coherent narrative. His more recent novel, Mr. Begone, which is founded on the gimmick that the book you're holding is possessed by a demon, had some word of mouth behind it about being a return to form, but I'm sad to report that it most definitely wasn't. On the other hand, I've read some of his early stage plays and gotten the same thrill from them that I did from reading the Books of Blood back in high school. So when I discovered that a small press had released some of his earliest writing, I thought I would give it a try. In 2009... Bad Moon Books released a hardcover edition of The Adventures of Mr. Maximilian Bacchus and His Traveling Circus, a series of four linked stories that date back from even before Barker wrote The Books of Blood. Needless to say, that hardcover edition has sold out and now sells on Amazon for about $800. The paperback sells for only $500. But guess what? There's a $4.99 Kindle edition and it even contains Richard A. Kirk's sumptuous illustrations. So I got me one. 
These stories tell a complete arc of sorts about a magical traveling circus where the whimsy is set on overdose. This is the sort of story where you can walk to the edge of the world, fall off, and reappear again in the sky. Not that this is necessarily a bad thing. Mr. Maximilian Bacchus is a tall, rotund, ancient wizardly type who leads his circus from town to town. The characters in his circus are distinguished more by their names and physical characteristics. Domingo the Clown, Eronimus the Strongman, Ophelia the Trapeze Artist, etc., etc., than by their personalities. Though a cowardly talking alligator named Malachi definitely stands out. One of my favorite touches is that their wagon is pulled by a giant ibis, and that no one seems to think there's anything strange about this. Each episode moves the merry band a little closer to a performance in Xanadu, as imagined by Samuel Taylor Coleridge in his poem Kubla Khan. Much of it follows a fairy tale template, though there are hints of the Clive Barker to come. For example, when a rival circus led by an evil sorcerer menaces our troop, or when the trolls crawl out from their homes under the edge of the world to attack a village. But ultimately, this is light-hearted fare, suitable to while away an evening, but it's not going to put the fear of the Cenobites in you. I enjoyed it. Whether or not you will may depend on how big a Barker fan you are. And that's what I have for you this time, folks. I hope you have a frightfully good holiday season. And until next year, stay scared. Ah, yes. Next year. Well, have a good whatever it is you celebrate, Mike. A giant ibis. I would love to have one. Mahler would not, but I will say that, well, for example, Ibis-headed Toth is my favorite ancient Egyptian deity. I could say it was because he was the arbiter of disputes, the magistrate of magics, the god of writing, and was he who judged the dead, but no, no, no. It was because he was really wicked-looking with that nifty, long, down-curved beak. When I was a kid, I always wanted to have an ibis. My mother, you see, was terrified of most creatures. She would hide under the kitchen table, for example, whenever Tuffy, the parakeet, was loosed from his cage to just stretch his wings and flap about. How would she react, I wondered, with an ibis wandering the house, stretching his wings, flailing that scimitar beak? Yeah, well, enough of that. Thanks, Mike. And while not particularly drawn to Clive Barker, I do enjoy some of him. I enjoy the adventures of Mr. Maximilian Bacchus, because ever since Ray Bradbury entered my life, I have been drawn to dark carnivals and to carny folk. Ah, well. As we are in the holiday season the season of travel and of going home to places that are, alas, frequently no longer home to us, yet which bear the trappings of the distantly familiar, I would like to offer the following. It is another effort by Mr. Robert Cabine, and it takes us to a place we should never opt to stay whilst on the road. Bob? Whitestone Grove Hotel There's a hotel with no address, a street without a name. No need to sign the register, the staff knows why you came. They don't take reservations, and the rates are cheap as hell. There's always been a room for you at the Whitestone Grove Hotel. The pale and waxy bellboy's eyes are cruel and dull and gray. They'll guide you through a maze of halls, and then politely say, Sorry, but there's no internet or service for your cell. I don't think you'll be needing them at the Whitestone Grove Hotel. 
There are no movies on demand, free soap or green shampoo. There are no Bibles in the drawers or windows with a view. The toilet seats have paper bands with hand-scrawled words that spell Satanized for your protection at the Whitestone Grove Hotel. The gaunt and greedy maids all beg for razor blades as tips. They always have a smile for you. They don't have any lips. And when they mop, don't linger long. You will not like the smell. The floors reek of formaldehyde at Whitestone Grove Hotel. Each room comes with a prostitute, but all of them are dead. Just never, ever, ever look beneath your bumpy bed. At one time they were beautiful. Now nothing's left to sell but obscene, lust-stained postcards from the Whitestone Grove Hotel. The ballroom's full of Romeos. They'll trade your love for pain, and pretty taxi dancers put ideas inside your brain. Do what you want. Do what you must. No one will ever tell. Your secrets are the property of Whitestone Grove Hotel. The bridal suite is occupied by double suicides. They give a pistol to the grooms and bouquets to the brides. They leave the chalk marks on the floor where lovely couples fell when the honeymoon was over at Whitestone Grove Hotel. Some young, ironic cannibals, with hunger in their eyes, gather round the piano bar and tell each other lies. You'd best steer clear if you should hear them ring the dinner bell. You might be on the menu at the Whitestone Grove Hotel. At night you'll hear a howling from a frigid basement room. The doors have all been nailed shut in that corridor of doom. Your sheets are always cold with sweat when lonesome dead things yell. There is no peace, no rest, no rest at Whitestone Grove Hotel. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, Bob. Young, ironic cannibals. I have known a few of them. Not so many now that I am no longer young myself, and have lost the edge of my own irony, but, but well, excellent. Robert Payne Cabine has built a singular perch for himself here in the nook, he is a poet of the ironic, the wry. We shiver, we smile at the dark. Bob is a writer and an artist who lives on the left coast of America, and I mean that in the nicest way. He's a screenwriter and wrote the animated feature Heavy Metal 2000 for Columbia TriStar Sony Pictures. Other film credits include Walking with Buddha and A Monkey's Tail. He also does some script writing for Disney. As I mention these things, I'm reminded that this is the third time I've shared bio bits about Robert without mentioning that, in addition to all of that, he also holds a Master of Fine Arts from Otis Art Institute, a dual major in painting and design, and that while still in said school, Robert designed the stage production for Ray Bradbury's Leviathan 99 which is one of my favorite BBC radio dramas. I spoke of it on the show following Ray's departure. Bob says of that whole experience, he and his friend and mentor Joe Muniani, and I hope I've gotten that correct, and the FX wizard Douglas Trumbull transformed Soundstage 9 on the Samuel Goldwyn lot into a cavernous multimedia theater. He further says that his fondest memory of the whole event was giving the non-driving Ray Bradbury rides back to Cheviot Drive after production meetings and rehearsals. Uh, quality alone time in a 1967 Plymouth Barracuda with a storyteller for the ages. Yes, priceless. Bob Newfeld, who read Whitestone Grove Hotel, is an old hand at 
this kind of dark and fictive dreaming. He's become the voice of record for Bob Cabine's entertainments here in the Nook, and will, in December, bring us the latest cabinery. In recent months, it was Bob Neufeld who entertained us for five-plus hours with his wondrous rendition of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. To my thinking, Bob is the premier reader on LibriVox, which is where I first heard him, and I always jump at a chance to have a listen to whatever he does over there. You can hear more from him there and over on the Crime City Central neighborhood in the District of Wonders, and, as mentioned, next month here on Tales to Terrify. Fiction Our story of the week is Lorscapedia by Edward Ahern. We are lucky to have Lorscapedia tonight. Fact is, we are lucky to have Edward Ahern at all, the reason for which I will cite later. Edward Ahern avers he returned to writing after having spent most of a lifetime doing other things. <laughs> well, how familiar is that tale? He still has his original wife. Oh, well, they are two children and five grandchildren. He says he's matriculated through most all his earlier sins and vices. Anything other than hard drugs, he says, he's probably attempted, and has had a pleasantly haphazard life. He's lived and worked in Germany, Finland, Japan, and England, has been to maybe 70 countries on business. He speaks German, French, and what he calls very bad Japanese, and along the way has gathered a B.S. in Illinois and an M.B.A., at NYU. More about Edward Ahern after we hear tonight's tale, Lorscapedia. The river coursed below them, deeply ravined and overhung with firs and hardwoods. Light glazed the surface only in the midday hours. Julie and Philip leaned against the sides of the covered bridge, staring down into the water through gaps in the framing, looking for fish. Julie pushed away from the weathered timbers. Okay, it's pretty, but it's too cold and fast to swim in, and if I did, you'd yell at me that I was disturbing the salmon. I probably would. You fish ten hours a day. I've tried to fish with you and don't like it, so I'm mouse-trapped. No cell phone reception, no TV, no internet. She stepped back onto the planking. The neighbors never seem to be out during the day and only speak French anyway. What the hell am I supposed to do? She started walking away from Philip back through the bridge toward the house. As she cleared the bridge, she turned around to make sure he was following. The name board was spiked into the wood above the bridge opening. Sevierville. The name had more letters than the village had houses. Julie, hang in a little longer. He quickened his step and caught up with her. We drove thirteen hours to get here. You like to hike? You could explore the area and take pictures while I fish. Ten seconds of silence. She wrapped her hand halfway around his bicep. Philip, look around. The river banks are overgrown. The road on the other side of the river is deserted except for logging trucks that come blasting through at seventy. The railroad tracks behind the house run from no place to no place. The other side of the tracks is overgrown forest. She inhaled slowly. All right, look, I'll try a couple walk-arounds and take some pictures. They stepped up the gravel road into a pocket of eight houses nested between river and railroad tracks. The One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Houses were all of a 19-teen vintage, built by the railroad company as a way station that trains no longer stopped at. The railroad still owned the land and the houses, and leased the houses for 30-year terms. Philip's small house, two bedrooms bigger than a hut, rested on a stone foundation that had settled with decades of freeze and thaw, leaving floors uneven and walls out of true. The wooden siding had warped enough to leave cracks for insects. Small patches of wet rot let occasional mammals get in without too much gnawing. Philip had gently prepped Julie for the experience during the long drive up from Connecticut. They had taught at the same school for two years, but had become lovers only that spring. Neither admitted to what they suspected, that two weeks together with few diversions would give their relationship a pass-fail. We'll be roughing it a little, but it's got indoor plumbing, electricity, and a propane stove. That's easier living than a lot of places used to be in Canada. You're tough and used to roughing it, so we should be fine. I'll teach you how to play cribbage. The locals aren't too fond of me, but we don't need them. The floorboards muttered softly as they returned to the house. Look, Julie, why don't you take the car this afternoon and go into St. Christophe? It's the closest village. You'll get a better sense of the region. Are there any craft shops? Uh, no. There's a church, of course, and a dépanneur, a convenience store, a gas station, and a farmer's supply store, I think. But it's a lot more open and sunny, and there's cell phone reception. Julie saw only two cars on the 12-kilometer drive to Saint-Christophe, both parked alongside the river. Fishermen. The dépanneur was off the road in a gravel pull-out area big enough to handle logging trucks. As she pulled onto the stones, her cell phone began flashing and making noise. She parked and started catching up with her messages. It didn't occupy much time. Her friends knew she was out of the country and had stopped trying to contact her. The dépanneur had a huge overhead sign, but was no bigger than a three-car garage. Once inside, Julie glanced over a minuscule selection of convenience foods. Half the store was devoted to fishing tackle and a large assortment of beers. A portly woman sat behind the register. Bonjour. Bonjour. Do you speak English? A little, if you speak slow. Julie glanced over the store. She saw nothing she wanted to buy, but knew she needed to spend time in there. Do you have wine? Wine, yes, in back, the woman stirred. You are driving through? My friend and I are staying at his place in Sevierville. Julie stepped back to the shelf. She was big-boned and angular. At not quite forty, she worked to retain a youthful grace. Philip was her first serious relationship since her early thirties. The few bottles of wine were on end and dusty. Two kinds of white, one kind of red. French generic wines, not from the U.S. Julie took a bottle of white wine to the woman at the register. The woman made no move to ring up the sale. She looked up at Julie slowly. How long you stay there in Sevierville? Two weeks. The others who live there are not like you. What do you know of them? Almost nothing. I sometimes see them at dusk and very early morning, but almost never during the day. I've only spoken to one of them, Gaston. Do you know him? The woman paused. Gaston, yes. He speaks for the village. You should leave Sevierville soon, take a real vacation in the region. My friend loves it there. He fishes the salmon pools every day, all day. But he is with you every night? Yes. Good. Still, you should leave soon. Sevierville is not a place you should stay. The woman rang up the bottle of wine and handed it to Julie without putting it in a bag. She leaned toward Julie and said softly, Outsiders are not welcomed in Sevierville. You should not rouse them. At a loss, Julie said nothing and left. As she returned to the covered bridge, she waved to Philip, but he was intent on his fly-casting and did not notice her. Once resettled on the lumpy sofa, she picked up a book and tried to read it, but was unable to focus without the gentle white noise of television or music. She grabbed her camera, 
walked out the back door of the house and took seven paces to the railroad tracks. Right or left? Right, up the tracks toward the other houses in Sevierville. The railroad tracks were in full sunlight, but the sun had already started to drop behind the steep hillside. The trains all seemed to whip through the village after midnight and before dawn, whistles blasting. There would be no trains this afternoon. She started counting the cross ties as she stepped over them. At the 80th tie, she reached the next house in the village. At the 160th was Gaston's house. Shades were drawn on all the windows of the houses. Beyond Gaston's house, barely perceptible foot trails slithered from house to house. The footpaths converged behind Gaston's house, disappeared at the railroad bed, and reappeared as a narrow trail that meandered into the woods. Julie skidded down the embankment and walked one foot ahead of the other along the narrow trail toward the woods. After a few yards of alder and aspen, the forest closed in. Dense, old-growth trees never cleared. Deadfall was everywhere in various stages of rot. Branches hindered but didn't obstruct the trail, so Julie went on, pushing them aside as she went. She was perhaps a quarter mile down the trail when it steepened upward. Julie grabbed at the branches to help her climb. In the dim light, intent on climbing, she almost stumbled into a vertical drop. As she swayed to regain her balance, she sucked in a breath of rank air. Julie focused her eyes downward into a pit. The bones, skin, and heads of many salmon, large fish that were illegal to keep. Fur and bones from several animals, deer and muskrat or beaver, and maybe squirrels. But the smell was not as bad as it could have been. The meat, guts, and sinew were missing, leaving only bones and skin, scales, and horn. Julie took out her camera and began snapping. The flashes in the dim light made it hard to see what she was recording. Poachers, she thought. They're poaching game. The trail ended at the midden. Julie clambered back down the embankment and worked her way out to the railroad tracks. As she cleared the trees, the bright sun filmed her eyes, and when she could focus, Gaston's head was visible on the far side of the tracks. She started and almost slid back down the embankment. Gaston, you startled me. How are you? It is smart that you do not go back to the garbage pit. Animals, even bears, come sometimes to eat from the refuse. So many dead things, Gaston. Does the village eat only game? Best that you do not go there again. It is dangerous. He noticed her camera. Did you take pictures? She hesitated a bit too long. No, Gaston, why would I take photographs of rotting hide and bones? Gaston was thoroughly covered despite the summer warmth long-sleeved shirt and pants, dark sunglasses and Panama hat. His frame was square and thick, but not fat, no belly bulge or neck wattles. His fingers were spatulate and coarse, with thick, dirty nails. It is best for you to concentrate on fishing, like Philip, or take a trip through the Gaspé. We don't like meddlers. Julie didn't wait ten seconds. Gaston, I'm not going to pry into your business, but I have as much right as you do to explore the area. She turned and walked back 160 railroad ties to their house. When she looked back, Gaston was gone. Philip came back after darkness had made fishing impossible. For all her annoyance, Julie was cautious. Her anger was less important than trying to keep him in her life. Until they were sitting down to eat a stew built from leftovers. Did you know there's a huge pile of dead animal remains in the woods near Gaston's house? They must be poaching. Gaston told me never to go back there. He's right. You shouldn't have gone there. And whatever you do, don't mention poaching to any of the villagers, and especially not to anyone outside the village. Philip, you sound afraid. There must be an anonymous poaching hotline you could call. God damn it, Julie. Don't even think about talking about them outside the village. These people can be dangerous. Before I bid on leasing this house, one of the other locals threatened to break my arm with a shovel. And when I did bid and was the high bidder, the same guy threatened to burn the place down rather than let me into the village. I had to sit down with this man and Gaston and agree not to ask questions and leave them completely alone. They barely tolerate me as it is. Philip, listen to yourself. If it's that uncomfortable, why do you stay? The fishing. I'm all alone on one of the best holding pools on the river. I leave them alone. They leave me alone. Julie pressed her lips together and kept them that way until they went to bed in almost complete silence. Philip, tell me we can get out of here. The first of the trains arrived a little after midnight. 
The high-speed engine noise pushed through the hollow, quickly followed by a horn blast that the engineer prolonged from the first house in the village through to the last. The house quavered with the train's passage. The third and last train bellowed through at false dawn. The horn was still echoing when Julie, half awake, heard a shrill squeal and a crunching thud. She lay still, hoping Philip was awake, but his slurred breath meant sleep. Julie turned back and forth for an hour, and at five-thirty got up, dressed, grabbed her camera, and went out to investigate. She turned left on the railroad ties, downstream. The track curved left along the river, and Julie looked down the river and saw several of the villagers. She snapped a distant picture, their dirty-looking faces staring back at her before turning away. Julie lost sight of them as she continued along the curve. A few minutes later, she came upon two men and a woman huddled over a brown bundle alongside the track. As she drew closer, she realized it was a yearling moose crumpled up with compound fractures. One of the men had a hunting knife and was skinning the moose, and something else had happened. Some of the flesh was not cut, but had been torn away in gobbets from under the hide. The three villagers' faces were red, as though embarrassed. Bonjour, Julie said, and got measured bonjours back in reply. What happened? she asked, and immediately felt stupid for not asking a better question. The train hit the moose, replied the man with the hunting knife. So why are you cutting it up? They will come and put lime on the moose, then we cannot eat it. So we cut up the moose and bring the pieces home to eat. But something has already eaten at the moose. Look where the meat has been torn away. Maybe coyote. The hunting knife returned to work, slicing hide from meat. Julie put camera to face and started taking pictures of the moose and the butchery. The woman moved to stop her but was grabbed by one of the men. All three threw heated French words at each other. One of the men, named Claude, perhaps, stepped up close to her, knife still in hand. His lower face, odd, it's streaked with red. Not a pretty thing for you to see. You should go back to the house. Now. The other man and woman had joined him, blocking her view of the dead animal. Their jaws were also streaked. Look, I'm not going to report that you're butchering the animal. If you don't eat it, the coyotes and bears will. It was the wrong thing to say. Their expressions hardened and closed. Leave now, the woman rasped. The sun was beginning to clear the embankment and fir trees across the river. As she turned to go, Julie noticed that the three villagers were also glancing at the rising sun. Very shortly after Julie had returned to the house, they passed by on the tracks, carrying haunches and chunks of meat on their shoulders, staining their clothes. Weird. It's as though they cannot abide the light. Julie climbed the narrow stairs and shook Philip awake. We have to get out of here. Philip groped for consciousness. It's... what day is it? Oh, yeah, Thursday. I thought we'd agree to play tourist this weekend. Today. Now. I have to get away from this place. Philip looked at Julie through clearing eyes and realized she was agitated. Okay, mental health day. He made a quick pot of coffee, shaved, and followed Julie out the door. They drove for an hour to the nearest town, Beausajour. Julie told him about the moose in high-pitched tones. These people don't have money, Julie, no real jobs. They're on the dole for the entire winter. It's no wonder they make a meal of a dead moose. And not just moose. They're poachers, Philip. There's that garbage pit in the woods that's full of fish and animal remains. They never fish during the day, so they must be taking the salmon illegally at night. Nets, maybe, or spears. What else do you think you know about? And not just know about, I've got pictures of what they were doing and the garbage pit. Did they see you taking the pictures? Sure. Philip said nothing for a long time. Then, I have to think, Julie. This could be bad. Why do you need to think? They're thieving animals, or worse. The day was notable for its silences. There was nothing of interest in Beausajour. No arts and craft shops, no interesting churches, no quaint architecture. They ate lunch at one of two restaurants, a roadside diner. A provincial specialty, pea soup, was watery. Julie tried to get beyond intermittent small talk, but Philip was preoccupied, almost frightened-looking. They returned early to the house in Sevierville, and Philip went down to the river to fish the remaining hours of sunlight. She tried reading, but the magazine seemed inane, not relevant. Bored, she took out the digital camera and went back through the shots. 
She and Philip as they were leaving Connecticut. Philip fishing. Her washing dishes in the kitchen. And then the midden. The pictures were much sharper than her recollection of the awful pile. Definitely salmon skin and bones, bones of small mammals. But some other bones, too, much too big to be a small mammal, almost human-sized. What would happen, she wondered, if the poachers in the village met another poacher while netting at night? And the pictures on the tracks. In the first distant pictures, their three mouths and chin were not dirty, but deep red, much redder than when she sighted them again more closely. Had they been eating at the moose, raw meat bordering on carrion? Julie was afraid, and then angry. As she was working herself up, she saw Philip returning from the river. Gaston walked over to intercept him. They talked with animation in what looked like anger. Gaston handed Philip a bottle and turned back to his house. She met him at the door. Philip, my pictures, I... Look what Gaston gave us. I think this is pretty good wine. He gave it to me, even though we had been arguing about you. Julie shouted over his words. Listen, Philip, there's something wrong about these people. There's some cult, some weird carrion-eating group. I think they were eating raw meat right off the carcass, just using their teeth. We have to get out of here. Jesus, Julie, what? Let me think a second. Philip measuredly took out a corkscrew and uncorked the bottle of wine. Chateau Lynchbage. He vaguely remembered the name as being an exclusive Bordeaux. He poured two glasses and brought them over to the kitchen table. Sit down, Julie. I think they hate you for disturbing them. It's maybe even dangerous for you to stay. We'll pack up and drive away tomorrow. Meanwhile, we may as well drink Gaston's wine. They talked for a few minutes, sipping the wine, before losing consciousness. Julie woke up in darkness, naked, to hear a train's shrill horn and feel the rumbling of its passage. She was sitting on a dirt floor, and her arms and legs were tied. Philip! she called, and then more loudly, Philip, help! Julie, where are you? I'm tied up! They scuttled toward each other in the darkness, pressing together side by side for warmth. Faint light finally seeped through chinks in the wooden flooring overhead. They were huddled on the floor of a root cellar. The hard-packed dirt was cold and granular, with embedded stones and husks that pushed against them. They were tied with plastic strips and had lost sensation in their hands and feet. After they had been yelling for help for a quarter hour, Gaston came down into the cellar. Gaston, Philip said, what the hell are you doing? Let us loose. I will be doing many things with you, but not let you loose. Julie interjected. Gaston, you can't... Gaston casually backhanded her, splitting her lip and loosening a tooth. He was very strong. Do not interrupt. We cannot allow you to take what you think you know away from here. It has taken us too long to find this place. Our choice is either to kill you or to see if you could become one of us. We are few, so decided to see if you can change. Isabel and Georges will come down soon. Do not bother to struggle. They are much stronger than you. Gaston went back up a flight of rickety wooden steps. Later that morning, a man and a woman came down the stairs speaking French. Georges studied them both. Je pense que la femme sera morte dans deux ou trois jours. Tu n'as pas raison. La femme est beaucoup plus tenace que son amie. Isabel and Georges walked behind Julie and Philip and grabbed their arms with muscle-bruising firmness. They leaned down and casually bit the captive's right shoulders, chewed and swallowed the small chunk of skin, and then spit into the wound. Philip and Julie yelped and tried to writhe away from the bites, but were held motionless. Isabel and Georges left without comment. Philip, my God, they bit us! Why? To infect us, I guess, and we're left here to let the infection develop. It's freezing. No food, no water. Do you think you can get loose? I tried, but I can't. I can't. Toward dusk, Gaston came down the stairs with two buckets. He dragged Julie and then Philip over to opposing walls in the cellar where shackles had been mounted. He shackled them both, and then cut their bindings. From one bucket he took out chunks of over-aged meat and threw them on the dirt in front of them both. He poured water from the second bucket into the first without rinsing out the remaining bits of meat. The water he put next to them. To live, you must eat as we eat. Eat quick, before the maggots get to it. We compete with the maggots. 
Gaston, please, you can't do this to us. You know us. We won't talk. You must eat or die. If you vomit up the meat, eat it again like a dog does. Julie and Philip left the food untouched. Flies gathered on the meat, undoubtedly laying eggs that would quickly be maggots. Night arrived and was too cold to sleep through. They tried and gave up on getting out of their shackles. They were both developing a fever. The next morning, dehydrated, they drank the earthy-tasting water. The meat lay untouched before them. Philip, if we don't eat, we'll starve. Maybe we should try and eat some of the meat before it gets any gamier. Can't you smell it? I don't think I could keep it down. We should try. I don't want to starve to death. Julie picked up one of the least dirty gobbets of meat, waving off the flies. The smell was not as bad as she had feared. It tasted, not fresh, but like hung game, deliberately off. She continued to nibble and was surprised to see that she had eaten almost half of the meat. Philip had been watching her. He too picked up a chunk of meat and started chewing, but almost immediately retched, spewing bile from an empty stomach. Philip, keep trying. You have to stay strong. I can't get it all the way into my mouth before I gag. Please, Philip, you'll die if you don't eat. They sat in silence for a while, then Philip swiveled to face her. I'm sorry I brought you here. I thought it would bring us together, but I may have only killed us both. We'll get through this, Philip, and when we do, I'm going to make sure that they pay. Gaston returned later that day, bringing more meat and water. Julie ate all her meat. Philip tried again, but couldn't keep from vomiting. Julie's stomach was writhing, reshaping to its diet of bad meat. Despite having eaten all the chunks of meat and gristle, she was still hungry. Julie, Jesus, I'm sorry, Julie, I would never hurt you. I know. Do you remember that Japanese restaurant where you wanted me to eat eel and I refused? <laughs> yeah, and I smacked my lips when I ate it just to rub it in. We've had good times, Philip. They continued to talk, just now and then, not of what they were now facing, nor what would happen tomorrow, but of the things they had done together, not sexual, but shared. After Gaston had thrown out the meat on the third day, Philip called over to her. Julie, I've tried, but I can't swallow the meat. I'm going to throw the chunks over to you. I know you're hungry. You can't. You'll die if you don't eat. Try again. Philip grabbed one of the chunks provided that day. The meat was rancid, and after two quick chews he spit it out and went into dry heaves. He grabbed another chunk and started to throw it over to her. Stop, Philip. If you have to, throw me the oldest chunks. I think I can get them down. Save the least rotten meat for yourself. Philip grabbed several of the older chunks and pressed them into a ball which he tossed over to her. Julie picked out the maggots. They didn't disgust her. They just seemed too fresh, too alive to be interesting as food. After a few tentative bites, she ate quickly through the ball of meat, hunger overwhelming any repugnance. By the fourth night, Philip's fever had worsened. He sucked air in spasmodic gasps, and while Julie was sleeping, without another word to her, he died. When she woke, Julie could only look across the cellar at him, lying motionless, half on his side. When Gaston later came into the cellar with his two buckets, he glanced briefly at Philip and then put the bucket of meat back on the steps. Gaston, please, Philip's dead. You have to bury him. Yes, dead, but of use. Gaston unlocked Philip's shackles and dragged his body to within Julie's reach. You are not yet one of us. You will need more meat for survival and for change. He left the water bucket and took the meat bucket away with him. I will return tomorrow with water, water only. In the gathering dusk, Julie squatted down next to Philip's body and wrapped her hand halfway around his still-muscled arm as she used to. A few flies were already hovering. My poor Philip, if I bury you with my hands, I will only dig you up when the hunger gets bad enough. God knows what I'm becoming, but I swear to you one day I will dine on Gaston. Is that not just the thing to distract us?
from thoughts of turkey redux, of course. And thank you for it, Edward. Yum. We left off telling Edward Ahern's tale at the end of his university years. Post-university, he was paid to be a naval officer, specializing in diving and bomb disarming. And I hope they were separate entities, which is why I dangled the earlier thought that we're lucky to have him. He's also been a reporter for the Providence, Rhode Island Journal, a foreign intelligence specialist, which information we may interpret as we like, and an international sales and marketing executive. He now spends his time writing, fly-fishing, shooting, and attending German, French, and Japanese language groups, and has, he says, circled back to his life's first ambition, writing, which was put away when people kept telling him he'd starve as a writer. He now focuses on making fantasy, science fiction, folk, and fairy tales, and has placed 39 stories to date in online or print publications. You may find his works at Aurora Wolf, Dark Futures, Liquid Imagination, and he's been podcast by Bizarro Cast, the Young Adult Cast, Cast of Wonders, and now here at Tales to Terrify. Lorescopedia was served to us this evening by Mr. Wilson Fowley. Wilson lives in Vancouver, Canada, with his wife and two children. By day, he programs computers. By night, well, some nights, he's the director of a community show chorus. In the time he has left to fiddle about, he narrates stories for various podcasts, and he says he intends to record a voiceover demo any day now. Really? Really, Wilson. Wilson, you must. And thank you for tonight's effort. And that will be that, children of the night. I think you know what you now must do. Yes, be upstanding. Be wrapped up. Be off with you. The walk home will do you good. It is cold out there, so the walking will be brisk, and the dark silence of even this week's tiny snowfall will probably spur you on. You may break into a sprint. It will do you a good turn. But when you get home, please try to avoid the urge to late-night snack your way to bed. Gluttony before sleep will bring back... Memories, memories of ghouls and deep hungers, and certainly will forswear any possibilities of pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.